Before we kick this show off, let's hear a word from our sponsors. So it's been a full season for the Under Pressure Outdoors crew in the Hasmore Outdoor Products Silent Seat. And let me tell you, they're worth every penny. And here are some reasons why. Number one, you can't beat the comfort level. Number two, they don't hold in moisture like rain or sweat. Number three, they completely fold out of the way when you stand up, giving you a full range of motion in your climber. And number four, they cut down on your setup and breakdown times dramatically. Don't just take our word for it. Use offer code UPO15 and get 15% off your silent seat and many other U.S.-made accessories for your climber today. You can find Hasmore Outdoor Products on Facebook and hasmore.net. That's H-A-Z-M-O-R-E dot net. And in the link in this podcast description. I'm your host, Will Krebs, and this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. What I was saying, though, the first two days we were out there, mm-hmm. we didn't kill a bird strictly on our own mistakes because Saturday he spotted me, and he was within 50 yards of the fence, and Sunday he spotted Jordan before Jordan could get back and get set up, and I couldn't see the bird, and he was two feet over the fence coming to where I was. Were you all hunting that little farm? Mm-hmm. Okay. I had that bird across the road. Monday morning, he was nowhere to be found in that area whatsoever. Yeah, he was. Yeah, I, I could, I couldn't. We didn't go back into that spot uh, until ten o'clock and sat there for from ten until three two two o'clock in the afternoon. Yeah, I saw him again Sunday on my yeah. way home from the last hunt that I did. But um, now he was he was roosting behind the house across the road from that little farm. Mm-hmm. He was roosting back there. There's a. a like a oh, you talking? You you're talking about the the little farm with the fire break that goes all the way on the back side mm-hmm. of it? I did hunt that. We hunted that uh, <clears throat> Sunday morning and some Saturday afternoon and Sunday morning. So there were two birds. There were two mm-hmm. gobblers in there. A really big one, and then a, a satellite bird. Right. So we killed the satellite bird. Nice. And we had six jakes in front of us that we could have plowed any one of them. We let them walk. The bigger bird, I had my guys going down that fire break around the back because he'd been strutting back and forth in that field. Mm-hmm. And I told them, I said, one of you get on one corner, the other one get on the other corner, and I'll keep an eye on him out here and see which way he goes and just text you and let you know which way he's going. And he decided to come through the feedlot on the north side of the house where mm-hmm. the cattle gap is. He came through there and crossed the road. I had him right in front of my truck. I could have, I could have mowed him. <laughs> I had him at twenty five yards, right in front of my truck. I'm yeah. just sitting there, and I'm like, "You guys need to get your butts over here because he's out here on the road and he's just kind of waiting, looking at my truck." I said, "You could slip right up behind my truck and shoot him," and that didn't make it in time. <sighs> and uh, so we ended up Monday afternoon, and we killed a giant uh, up on the north fence line up there. I'd seen a bunch of tracks where this bird, they across the fence line from had lost a bunch of trees in there to the hurricane. So they thinned it 
And God, it was beautiful. And those birds were roosting over there and coming back and forth to, you know, get with the hens. And there was this one spot on that fence line that just was tore up with tracks. So we set up there and we ended up killing this bird that was, he was 19 pounds, had 11 and a half inch beard and inch and a half spurs. And then we went over to the far northwest corner that borders a nursery over there and pulled a bird off the nursery. Mm. So we ended up with three out of there. We ended up with two, th- three out of, I had three guys with hunts over at Dexter Mary. So they all got birds. Um, one of them actually picked up the permit from Donnie Miley because he had the permit. His son got homesick after one day of hunting. <laughs> and they went, but then he ended up going up to Georgia and killing that six-bearded bird. Ooh. Very nice. A giant, giant six-bearded bird. That, that I... bird scored 102. So how do they score turkeys? So you take the weight uh-huh. plus two times the beard length plus ten times the spur length. So if you've got uh, you know an inch and a half spur and an inch and a quarter spur, mm-hmm. that's two point seven five times ten is twenty seven point five. Okay, and if he's twenty pounds, that's add twenty, so that's forty seven point five. And then let's say he's got a ten inch beard times two, that's twenty, so that's sixty seven point five. So what's your average? Right. Your I would say if if you look at uh, you say a one thirty class buck is is a really it's a really solid Florida buck, but right. for the southeast that's that's an average big buck, right? In the southeast. In Florida, yeah. you know, Florida, your average deer is going to be about 85 inches. Right. Okay? So your average turkey in Florida is going to have eight and a half inch beard, inch and an eighth spurs, and weigh about 16 pounds. Okay? So if you're inch and an eighth, that's two and a quarter. So that's 22.5 plus 16 is 38.5. Plus eight and a half, which is seventeen, right? So you know your your average score is only fifty five, fifty six. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So anything over sixty is usually a pretty solid bird. That's like your one twenty five, one thirty class deer. Anything over seventy is like a one forty. Once you start getting up into the eighties and nineties, you're talking about booner scores. Right. And anything over a hundred is like non typical. Fair enough. That's interesting. I, I've never looked much into scoring turkeys. Yeah, uh, you know that's an NWTF thing, and right? I, as far as I'm concerned, as long as they got a full tail fan, and you know, and they're a mature bird, take them. Bet that neighborhood fatty might be atypical at this point. <laughs> Not necessarily, man. There've been plenty. I mean, he, he may be a typical bird. He's just full grown. You know, you get something that's got twelve inches of beard. And inch and three quarters of spurs, but he's still a typical bird. He doesn't have multiple spurs and have multiple beards. Yeah. So multiple beards, multiple spurs, that makes him non typical. That makes sense. I can tell you that is it, it, the whole area up there is beautiful, and I can't wait for bow season because I found some spots in there. I'll oh, be yeah. right back in there. Yeah. And, and that, that area has got a lot of really good deer. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's not a bunch of giants in there, but there's some nice deer in there. We got. Way, way, way into some really thick crap and jumped what would, what likely is going to be and was a very nice buck mm-hmm. for Florida. I bet he was 150 pounds. Yeah. No horns, obviously. Yeah. Obviously I mean, they just deer, finished but, dropping them. Yeah. But he the was end of February. big body deer. Oh, Ain't no way that was a doe in there. 
No, there's some there's some good deer weights in there. I mean, I've I've seen deer come out of out of that area that are 170, 175 pounds. Yeah. I mean, I killed one over at um, Delancey, not Delancey, at Hopkins Prairie some years back. That was, he wasn't really big bodied, but he wasn't. He was bigger than the rest of the deer in the area. You know, 145 pounds, and first for an oak scrub area, that's pretty a big deer. When the majority of your bucks are 110, 125 pounds. For him to outweigh him by twenty pounds, that's a big difference in that that terrain, and you know, hundred twenty two inches. What what happened to us Saturday morning is we got up, uh, we were sat down on the ground by about five forty five with decoys out in the morning. See, I don't use decoys anymore. And uh, where Jordan had watched the bird go to roost a week prior, and where he had gobbled from Friday morning sounded like about the same spot. So we sat up to be about 200 yards to his left, which is where I'd seen him after he got off the roost, about an hour after they'd come off the roost uh, Friday morning. Mm-hmm. And I was like, mm, perfect. Uh, he'll come through here. He's, he either has to come directly across in front of us or he's going way out and around and right. coming back to this corner. So it's going to be hit a 50-50 chance, right? And we're going to play on that. <clears throat> well, he wasn't roosted where he thought he was. He was about 20 yards to my left. Yeah. And I walked around and he never knew we were there, and he just started hammering right off the roost. Mm. And they hit it. He was going back and forth with another gobbler that was probably 80 yards away from me. And then they hit the ground and just disappeared off the other side of that big field. Yeah, that, that's what they do. That's how they got to be that big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a bird over at Dexter that uh, wish had three birds in zone B. One of them was roosted on this ditch. And... He and, and another two had been coming out to this same field every day, coming out, coming out. Well, two of his buddies got shot, so he quit coming out to the field, <laughs> right? But the hens were still roosting right on the corner of the field as you come into it. Right. So what we did was we decided we were going to break them up. So we got in there and busted those hens off the roost the night before and made them fly off. Well, he stayed back on that ditch. So we tried to get in between him and the hens, and we did, but he, there's another road that cuts to the backside of the ditch. He went up that instead of coming towards us, and then there's a horse farm to the north, so he went straight to the horse farm, gobbling the whole way. Couldn't get him to stop. He got out there, and I worked that bird for a good two hours. I started gobbling at him, and I got him so fired up that he flew 300 yards from the horse farm across a creek bottom and a thicket and landed 30 yards from my hunter who then proceeded to shoot a tree instead of the turkey <laughs> you know it did it didn't click to it didn't click to me friday morning until i pulled into sid's house that at one point i was sitting there watching you watch the same bird i was watching mm-hmm. from the other side of the field yeah <laughs> i just walked and i was like well now i feel like an idiot because i could have done the same thing but i mean i guess i know where i'm gonna sit now which is in that corner where we're both looking back right. you know back with and and i sat but I had a really good time, and I learned a lot. Well, we, we, we didn't we didn't bother hunting that bird the first day because I knew yeah. we were going to be there. So what we did was we went down the first road to the left, and um, we hunted back there. There's one bird that's on the, on the power line, yeah, and another bird that's going to that those two pastures across the road from each other mm-hmm. on the other side of the of the resort there. And um, but somebody had put corn down on that mm. fence line, and we found it right away. So we backed out of there. And went to hunt the other bird, but he ended up going back towards the private property instead of coming out. So, and then the weather got nasty. Yeah. 
And so we, we bugged out of there and started looking further north throughout Lake George. And, uh, I mean, we found birds, but they were really scattered. I mean, it, the birds were so – they were already pretty much done by the time the season opened up. I mean, this past weekend, um, we didn't hear – I heard a gobble Sunday morning, three gobbles Sunday morning. It was the only bird I've heard in 10 days, gobble. Before that, the weekend before that, I had – I saw a hen with poults, and the poults were at least two weeks old. That means that by the time the youth season was opening up, the hens were sitting on nests and, and hatching poults at that time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we didn't come in here to talk turkey hunting. The- uh, <laughs> but I don't know that we can get Chuck Etchanique sitting around the table and not talk <laughs> turkey hunting. Uh, it's a passion, man. <laughs> but I'm your host, Will Krebs. I got Jim in here with me tonight. Yes, sir. I got Briar. Hey, yo. And I've got Mr. Chuck Etchenique. How you doing? Uh, and we're talking the future of hunting in Florida. Yeah. No, new, uh, it's an organization that's been around now since 2006. Um, the Future of Hunting in Florida is a nonprofit organization that works within the R3 framework, which is uh, recruitment, retention, and reintroduction to hunting and shooting sports. And originally... Um, I don't know if you guys were familiar with the sportsman's conference that we had in 2004, 2005 uh, in Gainesville. So we had this, you know, this big conference where all the different groups within Florida, United Waterfowlers, which is a new group, um, you know, the SCI, uh, NWTF, Ducks Unlimited, Delta Waterfowl, all these different groups got together. Uh, Archery, uh, Bowman's Council, Florida Archers Council. Um, they all got together and they're like, what, what can we do to, you know, promote hunting in the state of Florida? And it was actually, um, uh, Bill, um, with, uh, NWTF, he was our state chapter president at the time. And he was also on the, the national board. It was his brainchild to put together, you know, the future of hunting in Florida. And, um, what he did was he said, "Look, we, we put this organization together where we're gonna we're gonna focus on kids, getting kids into the woods, right, right, and teaching them about hunting. And we'll use deer hunting because it's the easiest sport to get them into, other than small game, right, right. But it's well controlled. The parents are involved. You know, we can set this up and introduce them to deer hunting, get them hooked on it, and then they'll continue to hunt. Well, that's great in theory, right." But the problem with it is, is that with all the youth hunts that we do and all these different organizations do youth hunts, where do they get their kids from? They get them from families that already hunt, right? Because if you take a kid who is from a non-hunting family and you plug him into a program, he'll enjoy himself. He'll go out and hunt and he'll have a great time. And he may even fall in love with hunting, but if his parents aren't hunting, he's not going to continue to hunt unless you keep putting him back in the program over and over and over again. Or he may remember it, but it's going to take him until he's 18, 19, 20 years old before he decides, man, I really had a good time when I went hunting that a couple of times when I was a kid. I want to start doing it, right? Well, if we got to wait that long anyway, why don't we focus on that 18 to 35-year-old demographic, right? They're, they're young. They have the financial means to hunt. They have the ability to get themselves in and out of a hunting area or join a club or get on the public land. They have... Um, a desire to want to do it. They're starting families, a lot of them, or getting ready to start families. So 
if you get young adults hooked on hunting, introduce them to other people of their same skill level and economic means, teach them how to network with one another, they will continue to hunt together and grow up in the hunting community at the same time. And then they'll raise their families to hunt. Right. So that's what my focus is now. I, I became the executive director um, unofficially back in October. And then officially in January 1st, I took the position. And, um, you know, um, John, the guy who'd run it beforehand, was passionate about it. But it was, it was always more like kind of a hobby. You know, it was something, he lived in Tallahassee. The hunting properties were near Tallahassee. So it was something that John could go and, and take care of, but didn't have to sink a lot of energy or money into it. Um, I'm taking it in a completely different direction. We're, we're spending money. We're building. I just got approval from our landowner to put in a new 24 by 30 pavilion, um, you know, basically a carport, which we're going to enclose half of and turn into a bunkhouse. We have, we're putting water on the property. We're renovating all of the shooting houses into tower stands. I'm adding more tower stands. I'm adding dove fields. I'm increasing the size of the food plots. We're getting on an actual management plan that I'm devising for this property. We've got 1,600 acres outside of Telosia. And um, the landowner is also giving us a long-term lease, which is basically first right of refusal. Right. You know, um, he can't be locked into not being able to sell or do what he wants with the property. And it's, right. It's, a, it's being managed for timber. But the majority of the property was clear-cut three years ago, so the browse is perfect height right now. And as it continues to grow up and the pines get taller, um, you know, we will have our established food plots and we'll be able to do the things that we want to do. But the dove fields will be used for, um, for actual dove hunts that will help to pay for the upkeep of the property. And the program, the way the program runs is, if you're a first-time hunter, if you're a novice and don't really know hunting in Florida, um, if you're a young couple who wants to get into hunting together, if you've got kids, if you're a disabled vet, if you're a female who wants to learn how to hunt on her own, um, if you're just a disabled hunter, we, we take any, any of those people and we introduce them to it. And for $75 for a single person, you get to hunt for two and a half days. You camp on the property. We feed you all your food and your meals and all your drinks. Um, we help you learn how to clean your game. You know, we, we ferry you back and forth between the stands. It's a completely controlled environment, and it's intensive learning. You know, when they're not in the tree stand, they're at the campfire or sitting at the table, and they're being talked to by myself, my staff, FWC officers, biologists, whoever we get to come out and talk to them. And... The amount of information that they're soaking up at the rate that they're soaking it up is incredible. And we have most of our hunters come back for two, maybe three hunts. And by the time they've done that and they've harvested game, then they come back and they want to volunteer to help with the program. Whether it's just to help ferry hunters back and forth, help cook food, keep the camp clean, help plant food plots or do up upkeep. And... Um, you know, it's, it's a heck of a value. With the kids, we take a kid and an adult, it's $100 for the two of them because of the food cost. But, I mean, the value is, is second to none. You've got some pretty, at least in the hunting circles around Florida, you've got some pretty legendary folks associated with that 
Lane Stevens, Mike Elf. Yep. Lane I'm, Stevens, I'm probably, Mike I'm probably Elf leaving some big ones. Um, out, you know, Brad Lowry, yeah. uh, who's the, the head of the Bowman's Council. Um, you know, um, John's daughter is now on the board. Um, Daphne Wood, who is, you know, huge in the quail hunting circles. She's got a big plantation. Bill Marvin, who was with MWTF for a long time. Uh, Ken Haddad, who was a former FWC executive director. Uh, Diane Agaman, who was, you know, head of hunting and game management for FWC for years. And um, a great waterfowl biologist in her own right. So we've got, we've got some big-name folks, you know, who are really well-connected and well-involved. And, um, you know, we, we're, we're now getting more and more people who've come through and are stepping up. You yourself stepped up, I mean, though you're an experienced hunter, Jim. You know, Jim was our first gold life sponsor. I came up with, actually, Jim's the one who suggested that we do it. And, I said, uh, if you'll do this, I'll write a check. It was, it wasn't yeah. exactly, I did not do a lot of work for it. <laughs> he didn't do a lot of work for it, but, you know, it, the idea was there. And um, it was something that I had already talked about with my board, but we hadn't implemented it. And I said, all right, well, I'll do it. I'll do it right now. And, you know, as soon as I got back from a hunt, I, I put it together, and, and Jim stepped up to the plate. And, uh, yes, I'm still waiting on the, the embroidery stuff to come back. You will get your shirt and your hat. I know you don't care about that, but. You I'll know. wear it with pride, though. But, yeah, I mean, you know, for, for the $1,000 that he gave us, he will get uh, an embroidered shirt that says Life Member with the emblem on it. Um, he'll have a hat that says the same thing. And um, and we'll have a few other little goodies and things for him. Nice. So I get them all put together. Um, right now, I'm in the process of getting the pavilion scheduled to be to be put up. And... We're having a website redesigned for free from one of our former hunters, who's an IT guy. Uh, he's also a now a Gold Life member. And um, we are going to have um, uh, our annual fundraiser, our banquet. We used to do it in person. Now we've gone to switch to online since COVID. And we're making about the same amount of money without the expense. So we're looking for donations of hunts, goods, People who want to underwrite certain projects, you know, we're fully tax deductible. And um, so if there's any any businesses out there that would like to donate to the future of hunting in Florida, we can give you a tax receipt and your your money's good, you know, to be uh, deducted from your taxes at the end of the year. That's a good deal. I, we just had a guy, uh, a <clears throat> Marine veteran, pop up on the Under Pressure Outdoors Nations page looking for help as a first-time hunter. It's interesting because that guy, the way he showed up is, I got another phone call today from, you know, one of the old BHA advertisements when I was doing some volunteer work from there, and he was he found one for Upper Hillsboro, and rang the phone today and was just asking some questions, and of mm. course, uh, I said, you know what you ought to do? You should go to Under Pressure Outdoors Nation. I said those guys will help you out, and then uh, <clears throat> he was actually asking. He's it turns out he's a disabled veteran, so. Um, let me shoot him some information about future hunting in Florida. Yeah, and I can also get him hooked up I, with uh, you know the disabled hunters of Florida as well. Nice, but he's a new hunter. That's great. He's just got all his licenses. And he couldn't wait to go out and hunt hogs, and he said, "I can hunt those year round in the WAs." I was like, "Slow down." <laughs> <laughs> Check on that one. Can you hunt them? Yeah, legally, no. no. <laughs> yeah, and I explained the whole private land thing and. and you know, but it's interesting though with a with a young hunter or a brand new hunter. 
you know, ex- explaining to because they want to ask universal questions. And there what I, where I did fail is I, I, I should have told them, I said, I should have given them the reason why you have to check the brochures, and I did. Right. I'll give them a call back. Is that, but if they don't understand that there's different land managers who all, and, and FWC is doing a great job. Um, oh my goodness. George Wortham. Thank you. <laughs> he is doing a good job, and he's been yeah. talking about it for years about trying to to bring more standardization, mm-hmm. right? So that we have less confusion, you know, with dog height and stuff like that that's still left over in some places. Um, but trying to explain to a new hunter that the reason that the different WMAs are different are, are, are because of the land managers or or size or or a it's number a of other hunt protocol yeah. or it's because there's a different management plan for that particular property. Yeah. Because each WMA is basically run as its own lease, right? Think of it in terms of a deer lease or a hunting lease. So each property has a management plan. Some management plans may be geared more towards forestry or timber management. Some of them may be geared more towards water management. Some of them may be geared towards game management, right? For, For example... You said Upper Hillsboro. Yeah, shotgun Upper, only because of proximity to housing. Well, that's part of it, okay? And then on top of that, it's a water management district property. Because of that, they have a more limited schedule than someplace like Three Lakes, which is also a water management district property, but because it's so rural, number one, and number two, because parts of it are owned by forestry, and number three, because it is considered an open public area with enough size to be able to handle a large quantity of people. Right. So the hunt protocol is different for that than it is for Upper Hillsboro. It's also a different water management district. It's St. John's versus Southwest Florida. And then you look at something like Andrews Management Area. Andrews is specifically managed for game management, not for forestry t- or timber not for water management, not for anything else. It's a purely game-managed area. But the protocols on that are still limited because it's a high-quality hunting area. When they develop that area, the landowners that donated the property have an adjacent cattle farm and timber operation. They donated the property to the state and said, we want to make sure that this maintains a high-quality hunt, so we're going to limit the number of days that you're allowed to hunt on it when they set up the conservation easement. Makes sense. Right. What I'll do is I'll end up forwarding forward this guy the podcast and say, here, this is why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I mean, there's, there's a number of reasons why different properties have different hunt schedules and season dates and weapon types and what game is allowed to be taken and, and isn't. And and their harvest amounts, too. You know, their harvest limits. It's, it's not that... Uh, there are some WMAs that do a lot. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you can hunt hogs year-round in the Ocala National Forest. No. No? No. Hmm. You cannot hunt hogs year-round. You have you can only hunt when another hunt type is in place. So during deer season, you can hunt hogs. During small game season, you can hunt hogs. The only time that you can't hunt hogs during a hunt is during turkey season because it's turkeys only. And the reason the state does that is because turkey season is only five weeks. 
it's a very intense hunt and the amount of activity that you would have would make it harder for you to be successful during turkey season. That's why they also don't want to... You can kill a coyote while you're turkey hunting. Right. Okay. Because they're a non-native and invasive species that is considered to be a nuisance. More so than the, the hogs. There are certain places where you can hunt hogs during turkey season. Like Caravel Ranch. Caravel Ranch during turkey hunts will allow you to kill a hog. Right? They, they don't care. But if you're in you know, uh, a different management area, say half moon, it's turkeys only. Hmm. Again, it goes down to the management plan. Right. So going back a little bit more to mm-hmm. future of hunting in Florida, you mentioned, you know, every NGO needs funding. We are, well, that's kind of a given. Yes. And you've talked about some of the neat things that we can do there as far as memberships and whatnot. But what else do you need in terms of resources? I mean, I know you need more than just money. Yeah, well, we need we need hunters uh, who are experienced that are willing to pass a <clears throat> um, a hunt master certification through the state. <clears throat> How do they go about doing that? So, you can contact FWC or get on their website and search hunt master certification. They do hold classes at the Ocala Youth Camp. I think they hold some at the um, Everglades Camp, and they hold them in Tallahassee, and um, they're free. It's usually a weekend. They teach you how to administer a hunt, how to fill out the paperwork. Those are all for youth hunts. We operate within the framework of the youth hunting network with FWC, but we also operate outside of it because FWC does not recognize adult hunts in their program. They only recognize the youth hunts. And those youth hunts get funding from Pittman-Robertson monies, uh, when they turn in their receipts and number of kids that they've they've hosted and whatnot, but with us, we fall under both inside and outside of those frameworks, and so our money has to come from either grants, donations, fundraisers, or the fees that we charge. And basically, our fees just it's a wash. Whatever we charge is what we're spending, because we don't we're not just feeding hamburgers and hot dogs and mac and cheese every weekend. You know, we we spend time and we cook. You know, we'll do a half dozen pork loins and, and slow cook them and turn them into pulled pork tacos. Or we'll do venison baked ziti. And, you know, we, we do real meals. It's not just junk food. You know, we, we provide lunches. We provide breakfast. There's all sorts of beverages. So, the, And, you know, we, we're filling feeders every hunt. Uh, and in those properties that we don't have feeders, we're still broadcasting feed. Uh, prior to the hunt, so to make sure the game is there and you know, kind of concentrated in the area, increase their their opportunity to harvest, and um, you know, so it's it's a it's a year round process, and it requires money year round, and you know, our operating funds, you know, from what we pull in, we pretty much spend what we pull in every year. Um, you know, the only person who is salaried is me, and I can tell you right now, it's not even half of of what I'm doing. Doesn't even cover half of what I'm doing. Yeah, I noticed that you did not pull up in the future of hunting Mercedes this year. No, 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 no. no. (laughs) Driving a 24 year old SUV, you know, with 340,000 miles on. Hey, but that thing will rip down a WMA trail. I've watched it. Yes, it it will. (laughs) Yes, it will. Yeah, it'll go through anything. Those old Toyotas are bad. But uh, yeah, so we need we need funding. We need volunteers as hunt masters. We need 
landowners to step up and donate, you know, opportunities for us to go on different places. We don't necessarily need to have a lease on your property, but if you'd like to host a hunt, you know, you can host a new adult hunter hunt. You can host a wounded warrior hunt. You can host a kid's hunt. The adult hunts are kind of a hard sell for a lot of landowners. So, so what kind of hold harmless agreement do you guys have with landowners that are, because I know that's got to be a concern for quite a few people that would be willing to do. Well, if it's a youth hunt, because it goes through FWC, they're automatically indemnified. Okay. Because it's a state run state sanctioned agency overseen event. They're indemnified. If not, we have a policy in place where we can do a quick addendum where we'll have a million in coverage for any loss. The landowner is covered. The land itself is covered. His family is covered. And anybody else he decides to assign to the policy, we can cover them. So they don't have to worry about that because we take care of it. Um, our policy is in place. We, um, you know, we make sure that we clean up everything afterwards. We, we work with the landowner and do exactly what they want us to do. Right. If they say, well, you know, I've got 5,000 acres and I want to host four kids. Fine, we'll host four kids. If they say, I've got 5,000 acres and I want to host 10 kids. Fine, we'll take 10 kids. Whatever. You tell us what you want. We'll tell you what we can do. And we'll work within your desires to make it happen. And, uh, I mean, if there's anybody out there who's, who's got a piece of property, even if it's five, 600 acres. On 600 acres, I can put eight kids comfortably without anybody, you know, as long as it's wooded. If it's right. wide, if it's all cattle pasture at 600 acres, you'll put maybe four or five kids on the tops. But you know, we had a piece of property in Levy County that was 705 acres where we... Almost every hunt we did was nine to ten kids on there, or adults, because we had stand locations already set up or pop-up lines set up with feed stations, and we you know we drop everybody off, we pick them up. Nobody's out walking around. There's no slipping or or you know traditional still hunting. It's all stand placement and hunting. And um, you know if if a landowner wants to do something long term, we'd be happy to sign a lease. We'll we'll pay for the infrastructure. We pay for putting in the food plots. We pay for the tree stands. We pay for the feeders. We put them up. We fill them. We maintain it. We do the improve, the improvements on the land for them. And if at some point they want to break the lease, then, you know, we do uh, a reduced fee on whatever the cost. If they want to keep all the stuff, we'll sell it to them for a reduced fee. All the stands that we had and the feeders that we had up in Levy County, when we lost the lease at the end of this season, there were nine established stands. Um, every one of those stands had a feeder. Everyone had a food plot. We just charged the landowner a thousand dollars for all of it. Yeah, you know, they was all seven years old, right. so it was it wasn't new equipment, but it was still usable equipment, including the shooting houses which we built on site. We had three shooting houses, and the rest of them were all two man ladder stands. They they got a heck of a deal out of it. Man, yeah. two-man ladder stands have come a long way since they first came out. Sure they have. <laughs> Just, I remember, like, the the first, when they first came out, you're like, yeah, here's the super thin pad on the stretch, the, the expanded metal. Yeah. No backrest. Who needs a backrest? Yeah, well, you know, no. we're, 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 we're a nonprofit organization. We're not putting millennial stands up. Right. Two-man millennials, but we are putting up nice stands. You know, they're 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 decent. They're muddies or something like that, you know. Mm-hmm. Muddy stands built. are pretty good. Yeah, they're pretty good. They're a strong build or something like that. And River's Edge. I've slept in many of them. I tell you what changed the game for us on those on those cheap two man stands though. 
was when uh, somebody's like, hey, I got some school bus seats. Put those suckers in the top of that two-man stand. Man, I still have some, some cheap extracted Chinese steel that I sit in every now and again. And my knees are already bad enough. But they're, it's like <laughs> they, were, they must have been built for people that were four foot eight because they are at just such a height that even if you're sitting there, that your knees are just the right angle where your knees just start to ache for no apparent reason. And then, like you said, your butt turns into a waffle. Yes. Oh, yeah, so uncomfortable. <laughs> that that is an evening hunt only stand because I cannot sit there very long, man. Like, I, I don't know who the engineers are, but there's a brand of two man ladder stand that has a bar that goes across the back, right at the small of your back. It is the most uncomfortable thing. I'd rather have no bar back there, where it just goes right up to the tree and there's you know uprights on the corners for the shooting rail, but nothing going across the back. Yeah, you don't need anything going across the back. Anything you put up in front of the tree, between you and the tree, is going to be right in the middle of your back. Because, let's face it, those bench seats are narrow to begin with. Yeah. You know, they may be wide enough to sit two people, but they're only 12 inches deep. <laughs> you know, and when you got a butt the size of mine, that's, you know, good for one cheek if you turn sideways. They don't make, <laughs> <laughs> they don't make a two-man ladder stand for Jim Hazley and Chuck Etch and Neat. No, no, no. No, we we need the extra size we uh, shooting be, house. We would be snugly the captain's chairs. <laughs> I like hunting out of two man ladder stands by myself. Just yeah, for the extra me too. Room. So yeah. that's all I buy. <laughs> yeah. I fill one of those out nicely. I get well. I get up there and I see you know, like you get when you get a, a booth at a restaurant to yourself. You can kick a leg out, right. and just kind of hang out up there and relax. Well, you know, you're also up there and you you, you put your your ditty bag, your stuff, yeah, next to you, spread out a little bit, yeah. You know? yeah. Deer comes in, you can set your phone down as opposed to like trying to tuck it between your legs. Because let's face it, you know you got your phone in your hand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and I take, I take my bag and I, I've got a bungee cord on the top of the, of the handle of my backpack. So I wrap it over the top of the shooting rail and hook it in on the corners. And now my bag is right in front of me, you know, inside of the shroud, of the camo shroud, so I can reach everything without having to turn around or screw something into the tree. Get your crackers. Man, I, tell I, you. I don't do crackers. They make too much noise. But I will take some beef jerky or yeah. you know, granola or something. I tell you what will change it for you, though, is you get you one of those big uh, night eyes, the S carabiners, S-shaped oh, yeah. carabiners. I have one that's big enough to fit, like, around my wrist. Mm-hmm. So it'll fit the majority of tree limbs that I want to hang my bag on. Fits around every single tree stand I've got. I just get up there and go, snap, over a limb, and it's done. You, know, you say you don't eat crackers. I've killed numbers of deer that I didn't know were there until all of a sudden I bust open the toasty cheek cracker. And, and you get that, <laughs> you get that. You know, they're, they're, not, they're like, what was that? Like, oh! <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, that stomp. That's the last stomp. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to alert them to that. I'll, uh, I'll stick to my, my little Debbies or, you know, something that doesn't make quite as much noise. As a toasty cheek. Besides, I can't hear anything when I'm chewing crackers. Might as well be eating Fritos in the stand, you know. <laughs> Sit tight. We'll be right back with a word from our sponsors. As we move through life, it's inevitable that we're going to find ourselves needing trusted advice from legal counsel. From business transactions to real estate, lawsuits to contract matters. We all need advice and assistance from time to time. Attorney Roman Hammes multi-state law practice focuses on litigation, business law, and real estate. Roman helps individuals and business owners find solutions to their legal problems. If push comes to shove, Roman is an experienced litigator with extensive trial experience 
and the ability to take it all the way. He's been named Super Lawyer every year from 2016 to present, a distinction given to only 5% of practicing lawyers. Most importantly, Roman is an avid hunter, angler, conservationist, and proud supporter of the UPO Nation. When you need dependable legal counsel, call Roman, 407-680-6050 or 843-324-1727 or email roman at romanvhamas.com. That's R-O-M-A-N at R-O-M-A-N-V-H-A-M-M-E-S dot com. Offices Florida and South Carolina. Say, man, little Debbie stock must go up about October every year because you know that you know, they got the typical kid consumption all year round, and then all of a sudden there's got to be a spike in hunting season. Oh, yeah, so especially, many guys especially once the Christmas tree cakes come out. Oh, yeah, I don't even like those. Things, I don't either, man. but man, that's all you see from you know November through January is just post after post on social media about Christmas tree cakes or zebra cakes. Or- I, I like Christmas trees. I can tell you this at this gas station down the road here from us. If you go in there outside of hunting season, they give it about a couple months after hunting season, all their honey buns are expired. During hunting season, not a problem. No, they can't keep them on the shelf. <laughs> you can't keep them on the shelf. <laughs> do you have a favorite blind food, or do you have a favorite? I do you hunt quite a few things. Do you hunt many ducks? Or I, I, I used to quite a bit. I used to guide for ducks. Okay. Um, you know, ever since... Uh, about, the man makes a coop call. Yeah. Yeah, ever since 2015... Um, you know, 2015, the hunting season kind of turned bad. We had a really warm year that year. And it's been warming up pretty much every winter since then. We've had a few cold spells. This past season was really great for duck hunting. It probably, you know, on par with the 2010 season, which was phenomenal. But um, it used to be that we didn't have that many duck hunters. And I could scout for a day and hunt three days on one day of scouting. And now I've got to scout three days just to find enough ducks to shoot one day, you know, and it's the way that people scout and it's the number of hunters that we have. Cause if you scout properly you get out on a body of water and you use your glasses and you look for your raft of birds in the middle of the day or the afternoon or whenever, and you find your, you know, you find your resting areas, you find your feeding areas, you find your roost areas. The way that most of these guys scout, they get in their boat and they drive the shore edge and they blow every pot of birds out of the shoreline. And they, they mark it and they go, oh, the birds were here. Yeah, well, if you and 15 other idiots do that in the course of a day, those birds are not coming back there tomorrow. The key word in that sentence was were. Right, were. The key they word, they the were there. were here. Yeah, and now they're gone. And the, now you gotta now you got to find where those birds are moved to. And in the majority of cases, there's so much water that we can't access in this state. Those birds are moving on to those small little pods of water on private fields or cattle pastures. And... And even still, even with all that, I've noticed just in fishing over the summer, late summertime, end of August, you know, beginning of September, Florida Bay, out of here on the East Coast, there's rafts and rafts and rafts of teal that aren't even stopping here anymore. They're going straight to Cuba. They're going straight down to the Caribbean. 
they're not even they're not even stopping in Florida. A lot of that also has to do with the amount of chemicals that are in our waterways. Because those birds can taste it. I mean, you're, you're spraying all that hydrilla and all that vegetation. They can taste it. They don't want to eat poison. They're going to go where the, where the food's clean. You know, you add to that the fact that the water management districts are holding more and more water in the lakes because we've got so many damn people. And they're holding more water plus the stuff that's going on in Lake Okeechobee. <clears throat> you know, they can't keep forcing water. <coughs> excuse me out the Caloosahatchee and the St. Lucie rivers because people are up in arms that, you know, the grass beds are dying every time they have to flush the lake. So they're holding the water further north. They're holding it in Kissimmee. They're holding it in Toho. They're holding it in Cyprus. The areas you used to be able to get into and wade are now above your waders. There's no places to get in there and wade anymore where the ducks want to sit. So now you're going to have to, if you want to hunt the birds on those lakes, you got to hunt, have to hunt layout style, you know, or hunt in a popcorn box. And that's a lot of work to shoot ringers. Oh, man. Let me tell you, though. That's a good time, though. After season, me and Briar were in his boat going across a large body of water near here. Hundreds. Hundreds is nothing. It, it, from 2008 to about 2014, Lake Toho would literally have ten to 15,000 ringers. Yeah. The day before the season started in 2012, I got video of this at home. I'll have to find it. Um, myself and my buddy Doug were sitting in his boat on Big Grassy in a spot that we normally hunt. We sat there that after that, that afternoon just watching rafts of you know flights of 100 to 200 ringers come in at a time. We probably had 3,000 birds sitting in front of us in one spot in Big Grassy. And when we got out there that next morning at 3 a.m., set up our decoys, get our, bird, our, our, our boat blinded in, we spent the next four hours just shining people off. And, I mean, guys were setting up within 100, 150 yards of us. We were completely surrounded. And, of course, as soon as legal shooting light started, there was so much gunfire in the air, the birds just picked up and hauled butt. And we had to go and find new water that didn't have people on it. We ended up scratching out our three-man limit that morning. But, I mean, since that time, since 2014, the number of duck hunters has gotten ridiculous. The pressure has gotten ridiculous. And the birds have been conditioned to seek other places. It's gotten very, very difficult. Dad and I sold our duck boat last year because we weren't using it to the extent that we needed to. So, think about the paradox here. Right? We're sitting here the... And this isn't a crack on No, I know it's it, not. It's the paradox is we're sitting here for the future of hunting in Florida because we got to have more hunters, otherwise we lose our way of life. Mm-hmm. And at the same, in the same, almost in the same breath, of like too many damn hunters, yeah. right? So in <laughs> well, here, like too many there was a thing, duck hunters. Steve Rinella was talking about his brothers, like why? You know, they're talking about R three, R three, R three, and I forget which one of the Rinella brothers. Like, I, I don't care if there's another hunter. Why would I advocate to increase my competition? Right? And it is a. It is a. The competition isn't the problem. It's the education level of the hunter that's the problem. And it, it, hunting is a learning curve, yeah. right? You know, to become an experienced hunter, you have to do it more. You have to read a lot of things. You have to be out there and, and, and learning to do stuff. But you have to use some common sense. You know, when I was writing for Woods and Water, I actually I wrote an article about common sense, um, hoping to impart some some brain cells to some of these guys. You know, talking about things like, being on on Kissimmee River 
gator hunting and watching two airboats zigzag back and forth across the river at full speed, lights flashing all over the place with cocked and loaded crossbows, like they were going to shoot an alligator from a boat moving 30 miles an hour. Right? Safety was on. It's not real safe. It's also not conducive to good hunting. I mean, yeah. you're zigzagging back and forth. Gator hunting's a stealth sport. You know, you can't get within 200 yards of an alligator with an airboat, which is why I sold my airboat. Right. You know, I'd much rather have a trolling motor or a push pole in my hand because I'm going to get closer to those gators. I'll be able to cast on them. I'll be able to get a pole spear in them. But it's like fishing for redfish. You can't just buzz up to a, a an oyster bar full blast, come off a plane, chuck the anchor over the side with a big splash and think you're going to hook into his pot of redfish that are sitting there. No. <laughs> you, you need to you troll can. and motor. You can try. You're not going to be very <laughs> successful. You know, but you, you need to troll and motor in, push pole in, slip that anchor or your power pole down yeah, quietly. You got people in the boat going, shut up, yeah. shut up. They're right there. They're shut right up. right there. Don't make any noise. You're taking the lid on the on the bait cooler. Yeah. Dunk, dunk. Like, yeah. <laughs> so you pick up the rod. It's like, let me see how many things I can hit on the yeah, boat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's, I, don't, uh, I don't know why they stopped biting. I don't know why. Exactly. <laughs> Buddy Rich up here playing the drums. And Let me ask this. And I've, I think Jim was with me. We had this one particular wood duck spot that was hot. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, man, I don't want to hunt it too much. And how many hunters have we pulled out that have shined off of that spot? Uh, every time we go. And it was like, well, we were thinking somewhere we were going to hunt tomorrow. And I'm like. We can hunt here. Or we couldn't. We probably shouldn't hunt there. Right. I'm like, we've shot it, what, I don't know, we shot it a couple of days in a row. We're well, like, well, is, maybe it, we... is it a roost or is it a feeding area? Um, feeding area. Feeding area. Okay. Because, you know, once if you shoot a roost, you're only going to get one chance at a roost yeah. and then you've blown it. We, we've hunted there a couple of days in a row. You know, if it's a feeding area and you, you can, sometimes you can hunt it a couple of days in a row, depending on how many, how many yeah. birds are coming to it. Wood ducks are tricky. We had quite a bit there. But the early season, yeah, yeah. shooting shooting new birds. Yeah, if you're shooting and, new birds, you know, shooting migrators, that's a whole different story. Yeah, and it was like, well, we could hunt here, or we could go somewhere else. We probably should hunt somewhere else. We've already, but then we were like, well, if we and don't if hunt it, somebody a, else will. But if it's a spot that is easy to get to and people know it's there, yeah. if you're not there, somebody else is going to be there. Yeah. Well, I kind of joke. I'm like, if. Everybody's like, oh, so much pressure, so much pressure. So many hunters. I'm like, yeah, Briar and I never have that problem. Because, like, 3 a.m. is late going out with Briar. It's like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, if you're the first one on the spot, and you yeah. can shine other people off, that's fine. But even if you are the first one to the spot, if you're not hunting those areas that are kind of out of the way that the birds want to be on that not everybody knows about, that's where the scouting comes into play. Yeah. Right? You know, you've got to be willing to go further and deeper and – and spend more time and money and gas to get to those spots and, and locate them. Because, you know, the point on the lake that's got the hydrilla mat on it and the and the cattail reeds 30 yards off of it, everybody knows about it. They come out in the lake and they see all the birds sitting there when there's no hunting going on. They go, we're going to hunt right there. But everybody else is seeing the same piece of water and the same birds. Yeah. You know? So if, if that's what you're going to hunt, you're going to have very limited success and a hard time finding birds the rest of the year because everybody knows about it. But if you've got to travel seven miles upriver and cut through, you know, a little tiny ditch, get out of the boat and go find a, you know, a little, a little wet spot back there. Um, Prime example, uh, Ocklawaha Prairie, 
used to be this way. Aquahar Prairie was a limited entry hunt, right? You go in, everybody, depending on which way the wind was blowing, dictated which ramp you used because all the floating tussocks would move around. So if you had a wind out of the out of the west, you had to go all the way around to the west side to go use that ramp. If it was blowing out of the north, you could use either the north, or the west ramp, or the east ramp. If it was blowing out of the south, you basically had to push your way through it and and then go hunt the edge of the open water. Um, but there were always some pockets that if you were willing to just drive up the levee and park and drop down and then walk through the cattails to a little opening, you're going to shoot your limited teal in the morning. You might even get some gadwall or some widgeon and pintail in there. Um, but you had to you had to sit up on the levee. You had to watch where the birds were going and do it you know, a couple of days before the hunt to make sure that you knew where you were going to be and then be the first one through the gate to get to it. Um, you know, so if you, if you didn't do that homework, then you were stuck with the rest of the guys trying to navigate the one or two little, little pathways that you could get through the floating tussocks and then everybody would be on top of each other. So why wouldn't that work today? It will. The problem is, is that it's harder to find those spots because there's more people going to them or instead of sitting on the levee and doing it, they're coming in from the water and trying to blow into it with their boat because they don't want to do the hard work. They want to do it from the boat. Got it. Well, there you go. There's a hot tip for you duck hunters. Uh-huh. Oh, man. We, you know, but having the ability to, to go that a little bit further, we we hunted a, a spot in southeast Georgia mm-hmm. when I lived up there. And we, when the river would flood the banks about 13 feet, it would come well up into this WMA and it flooded everything. Now there's parts of it that constantly have water, like mm-hmm. the big lake we would sit on. So like that always had water, but when the river would come up, it would just fill all the hardwood trees around there. Yeah. You'd so have you have a flooded timber hunt. Good flooded timber hunt. Now, when it did that, you also had flooded roads you had to drive through to get out there. Mm-hmm. So you hit a point where we would pass through holes that were, two and a half, three feet deep. That's not a big deal in a pickup truck, especially when it's a hard sand bottom. Right. This wasn't like going out no caliber. It was like, woohoo, and they right. ride it up. You could just drive easy through there. Well, we got to the end, and there was one hole that was about four and a half feet deep, and I was like, that's a little much. I told my buddy, I said, uh, if only we had a lifted Jeep and a John boat, man, we could get across the other side of that suck, that thing right there and just drop that John boat in, and we could run the rest of the road because we knew – Using my John boat, we could go all the way around the lake. Mm-hmm. Then we had to carry the John boat like 800 yards, drop it back in, and we could get out into the river and stuff like that. Right. We're sitting there one morning. This dude pulls up in a pickup truck. We're like, "Oh, you gonna hunt out here?" He's like, "No, I'm waiting on my buddy. I'm gonna we're gonna, I'm gonna hunt with him. I think we're gonna we're gonna try and cross this right here." He pulls up in a jeep with a John boat upside down on top. And I was like, mm-hmm. "My man, And they just drove right <laughs> through that. Right day. The <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the same thing with you know deer hunting in certain places. Like, there's a spot in Gothi. That I, I like to hunt. I used to like to hunt. I don't hunt very often anymore. Because I have other places that I like to go that are easier to get to. And I'm getting to the point where I don't want to work that hard for it. <laughs> um, but there was a spot over there where I would I would park. It was a walk-in only. There was no road, no drivable road to get back to it. And it was a half mile from where you'd park to get down to this cypress head that had a kind of a deep creek. And even on dry periods, the creek would hold two and a half, three feet of water. So you'd have to put on chest waders to get across it. So I would carry my my tree stand on my back, my bow in my hand, 
my waders in the back on, on a bag hanging from my tree stand plus my backpack and I'd hump it in the half mile get there put the waders on cross the river, the, the creek take the waders back off stash them in the blind bag by the creek and then walk the rest another three quarters of a mile to get back to this island that would just be full of scrapes and rubs and I mean every time I'd go in there I would kill a deer didn't matter what day of the week it was if I hunted that little island I was killing a deer it was worth it to me to do it back then. I don't want to work that hard anymore. <laughs> it's my knees. I'm not it's walking. Not I'm not walking in. a mile and a half. It's, yeah, it's getting not, the damn deer out. Yeah, that's yeah, the problem. getting them out. You know, too. And even with even with all the stuff that you can take back in there, it's still it's way too much work for you know for a flatwoods deer in Florida. Yeah. You know, if if now if I had one in there that I'd seen that was you know a man sized. Yeah, I'd probably go. You do know, it. I, you say that, man. I, I was walk. I was hunting a spot in Kentucky. We were literally walking uh, two and a half miles from where mm-hmm. we parked to where we hunted. And I told my buddy, I said, "You better not shoot a damn deer in here unless it's a freaking monster." Because I ain't helping you drag a button buck, buddy. You're on your own. Well, and uh, uh, button are you buck, hunting, though, what are you, you hunting? Land between the lakes, or you hunt on the base? Yeah. Fort Campbell. Oh, you're hunting Fort Campbell. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, they have limited roads. Because I'm gonna say, if if you're hunting some places in Kentucky where you got to go two and a half miles. Change your property. Yeah, no, we were we were hunting on a spot where the range road uh, was closed at the main road. Mm-hmm. So that was half mile of our walk was on a gravel road. Right. And then the other two miles was down the fence line going out into to just sit on the edge of the cantonment area. Right. And uh, I shot a 13-point in there that dressed out at 230 pounds. And I don't regret killing him. But it took three of us, uh, three and a half hours to get that deer. We got oh, to the gravel road, and I said, I rolled my ankle. My buddy said, you all right? And I was like, no, I rolled it really bad. You need to go get my truck. I'll stay here with the deer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gotcha. Yeah. You know, uh, now we have e-bikes everywhere, mm-hmm. and they have become the bane of my existence. Because, know. you know, not that I begrudge anybody getting around. I don't. Can't beat them, join them, Chuck. Nope. I'm not going to join them. See, I have an SUV permit because I have bad knees, right? I, I Originally. Now you're just jealous. And now I'm jealous, yeah, because I, I used to be able to get away from everybody during turkey right. season, you know, uh, be able to drive the, the roads that you had to walk. Now, I'm, you know, prime example, not this year, but last year, we went to um, Canoe Creek on Three Lakes. I had a couple of clients, and we went all the way back towards Lake Jackson. Right, and we were all the way down, almost to the end of the fence line, which is a good mile walk from where the trucks have to stop. We got in the first ones in there, you know, because I can drive that closed road. We get up. We only had about a four hundred yard walk to get from the truck to where we we're going to hunt. We get set up, and I had to shine off three different groups of e bikers that morning. And of course, all they did was go. You know, one of them went one hundred fifty yards south of us, and another one about two hundred yards north of us. And the other one stayed about 150, well, about 300 yards back to the, to the west of, or to the east of us. I'm like, we're surrounded. I said, with all the lights going up and down this this little strand here, and all the bikes and the noise, the birds ain't going to talk. They ain't going to do nothing, and they didn't. We ended up having to go. Believe it or not, where we ended up killing the bird was within 75 yards of the road. I said we've talked about this before with, with the with all the e bikes and everybody going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper mm-hmm. and deeper. Everything's going to be 100 yards from the road. Yep. It's going to flip-flop. Yeah, it is. It's starting to. But, yeah. I mean, it's still, when, you, when you've when you been hunting certain places forever 
and you've had success on them oh, forever. Oh, yeah, I know. It's hard to. And now everybody's getting to them. It just drives you insane. No, I know. You know, I pull up to a spot, and there's four trucks, and they all got bikes on the back. I'm like, well, we're not, we're not hunting here. What, why not? You see this? They're all going to the center. They're going to race in the morning to see who's going to get to the spot first. Right. I'm not going to race anybody. Just like, that's why I won't hunt the STAs anymore either. <laughs> you know, you get to a parking spot, you take all your gear out, and then it's a it's a paddle race to get to the one spot where all the birds are flying to. And we're, forget that. I'm not, I am not driving three and a half hours, spending two hours in marsh, setting things up and racing somebody to try and get to a spot to, to be, to miss it by five minutes. You know, it ain't worth it to me. You know, not you talk, for six ducks. We, we talk about education and thinking and whatnot. And don't get me wrong. I love killing limits. Mm-hmm. But. I, most of the time I take the time to pluck my birds. Mm-hmm. Like it's why I hunt. If, if man, if I get that lone star tick allergy that you can't eat meat, I'm done, man. I'll just fish. Like I, I hunt to eat. Right. And mm-hmm. one of the things that kind of gets me is you get guys that are, they're killing limits and then they're ripping just the breasts out. Whereas if instead you went and hunted wood ducks and maybe you only knocked down one or two, um, assuming that you're not going to frame the damn things or mount right. them, take the time to pluck them and make really good food. Because that's the weirdest thing I know. So I hear a bunch of guys that are duck hunters that don't even like to eat the ducks. And I understand there's also another component, the challenge, the whole experience. You get to run up boats and shotguns are great things. But... <laughs> Maybe that's just a little bit of maturity, you know, that no, um, that's, it's the phases of hunting, right? So when you're a new hunter, you're about the kill. You're about body counts. As you mature, you may look for more quality game. And then you get to the point where you're hunting specific game. And then you get to the point where it's not about taking game at all. It's just about being out there and having the experience or watching somebody else or teaching them. I hope I never get there, man. I'm always about taking the game. Because well, it goes I, back to the food, right? But I'm also, I don't understand catch and release fishing. Well, I do. I mean, there's there's certain, I really enjoy catching snook. I love the chess match of snook fishing, right? Especially with artificials. And if you catch them, most of the time the season's closed on them anyway. But I'd rather spend a day trying to catch some big line siders and not take them home than I would filling a cooler full of trout that are easy to catch, especially when they're spawning. Right? I'm just it's not for me. Yeah, we fish for different reasons. We fish for different reasons, right? Right. So I understand the catch and release aspect to a certain degree. Don't get me wrong. I still want to keep a snook every now and then because there's nothing finer that swims for eating. Yeah. Right? But, um, you know, but even when I go snook fishing, I'm done snook fishing, I'm done messing around with them for the day i've still got some some places i can go cut some snapper and put them in the cooler because i want some fresh snapper for dinner right all right i do enjoy having fresh fish for dinner just like i enjoy having fresh venison or or good duck or i guess i gotta amend my my comment because i do not stop fishing i do not stop fishing when i have my limit right yeah. It's 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 the enjoyment then, so of then, fishing. 
then it, well, usually it does become I'm trying to find a different fish. Sure. But like, it's like sometimes redfish, sometimes you like fish all day and you oh, got my redfish. Other times you're like, where the fuck are the trout? <laughs> you know, when nothing's by that. Man, I would kill for a yeah. jack right now. Yeah, but I don't know. Fish. I still, I'm still fishing. Yeah. Right? So I guess I guess maybe there's, well, I, I have no problem. Probably one of my superpowers. I have no problem admitting I, I got, I'm a man of hypocrisies. Right? Well, but the, the, the whole idea of, I have no, like, we're going to go, and we're going to go all the way out to Montana. We're going to go hiking and we're gonna go fish this place and we're gonna leave all our trout in the river and i'm like nah (laughs) (laughs) it's gonna be beautiful plenty of other beautiful places where i could put the trout in the creel and yeah you know i I enjoy eating what i take right and and so i i want to take some home but that's part of the reason that we do it is to not only the experience but also the table experience yeah yeah you know that's why meat eaters are so popular Good that's, point. Oh, yeah. that's one of the reasons why that show is so popular. You know, um, I know Steve a little bit. I've met him, and he's a really cool guy, and I like him. Um, and one of the things that always impressed me about his show is the lack of pomposity, right? And the, the genuine drive to make it about the table fare. Yeah. You know, and the experience, not so much the kill. Not so much, I'm, I'm collecting a giant trophy. They're looking for mature animals when they're hunting, right? Because that's what we do as hunters. We want to take a mature animal. We don't want to take a, an immature animal, something that's still got a life to live. We want something that's hit its peak or that it's in its prime. So it's a good representation of the species. It's a challenge for us to match wits with that animal. And the fact that we're taking something that will provide a goodly portion of of meat to us when we take it. It's the, the reward for the effort that we put in. Right. I mean, any idiot can go out and shoot a yearling doe for the most part, you know, I'd take one a year. Cause that's how you get your veal. Well, and if that's what you want, that's fine. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing wrong with it. Yep. Right. There's nothing wrong with taking that or shooting a spike or whatever. As long as it's legal, a legal harvest and you do it ethically there's nothing wrong with taking a deer of any age or a game species of any age. But for most of us, I know at least for me, I try to find something more mature because I've been doing this a long time. And it's not about the kill. I could spend an entire season, never pull the trigger, and still have a very enjoyable season. Right? It's about sitting. There are days when I go sit in the woods with no intention of pulling the trigger at all. Just being in the woods and watching. See, now, okay. if, if if something comes along that's exceptional, I may change my mind. Yeah, I've done that deer hunting. When, you know? But I switch gears because it's funny because we do all, we hunt for different reasons. And um, I like deer hunting. But I like wing shooting more than I like deer hunting. It's a different and, action. Yeah. And so for me, deer hunting it becomes about payload because when I say payload, mm-hmm. I'm, I need a certain amount of venison in the freezer. Fuck for the bang. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's why you, you laugh about the does and I'm not kidding. Like yeah. the, the first, the the first deer of the year that I see, you know, gets it right through the melon, man. So I'm looking at prime veal. Right. And then, and usually I'll knock down a couple other does, 
But once once the realistically, once I've got three in the freezer, then I, I get a lot more choosy, right? It's like I, I just I don't shoot six point. I don't shoot a six point buck usually because I'll wait for something bigger. If I get more payload, and because why not? Mm-hmm. And and if it's just about putting more meat down, well, there's another doe that'll be around any minute now. So, I guess again back to the hypocrisy. Right. Well, I don't right? think it's hypocrisy. I mean, I can tell you from my from my perspective what I what I normally do. Archery season is hot and uncomfortable in Florida. I don't care where you're hunting. If for the most part, it's hot and uncomfortable. It's buggy, and you don't have a lot of deer movement no matter where you are, right? Except for maybe down south where the rut is in Zone A, but. You get outside of zone A, you get in zone C, B, or D. Archery season is hot, uncomfortable, buggy, and there's not a lot of deer movement except first light and last light. Because there's so much food available, the deer don't have to move. Right? So archery season for me is a time to identify areas where deer are concentrating for the gun season for the rut, number one. Number two, to kind of get reacclimated to the woods and number three to possibly take something early season with my bow um, so I concentrate on does during archery season I'm not necessarily buck hunting I will be in areas where there are bucks I will be in areas where there are good bucks but the likelihood of me killing a good buck in some of those areas primarily because I'm hunting public land I'm not on any leases anymore and I've been hunting nothing but private land most of my life. I've been on leases here and there throughout my career. But for the most part, I've been a public land hunter most of my life. So public land hunting for me is about maybe taking a doe or two during the archery season and identifying where there are good bucks and then when the rut hits, concentrating on those bucks. When I was younger, and, I, and up until the time I was in college when I was feeding four other guys, you know, and you know when you're living with four other deadbeat guys in college and they don't have any money or any food, we're eating a lot of venison and a lot of fish. So it was no, no big deal for me to whack every dog, every deer that I saw that was legal. And I would kill 10 to 14 deer a season, you know, those few years that I was in, in college with, you know, living with a bunch of guys because I was feeding all of us. And, and four college-age guys will eat an entire deer in no time flat. Yeah. You know? But, um, you know, from, you were talking about the, the hypocrisy. It's, it's really not. I mean, again, it goes to the stages of hunting and, and where you are in your hunting career as to what you want to take. For me, if I'm hunting public land, it, I don't care how many points it has. If it's a mature deer, I will take it. Yeah, because it's hard. I mean, it's like right? if you let that one go, right. you're probably I'm, not going to get into the chance. Even if it's, if it's a legal deer, like for instance... If I'm hunting in a four corn area and I see a four corn, I may or may not shoot him, depending on how many deer I already have in the freezer and where we are in the you know, stages of the season. I let I let this one six point that I saw, it was probably a three and a half year old deer, but I'd already killed four deer this year and I kept seeing him every time I went into this one stand of, of hardwoods. I didn't shoot him. He's going to be there next year. This coming season, I may put an arrow in him. I may put a bullet in him, depending if he's, you know, still in that core area. But I know he's going to be there if he hasn't been messed with or pushed out. They didn't timber that area, so he should be there. Mm-hmm. Right? So I've got a deer for next year, for this coming season, that I know I can pretty much count on the fact that he's going to be there. 
Unless. Unless, you know, something <laughs> else. But for the most part, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm 80% sure he's going to be in there, right? I did take a four-point out of a different area earlier in the season. Why? Earlier I only had It was early. I only had one deer in the cooler, yeah. number one. Number two, it was an area that was a limited entry hunt that had a four-corn rule, and he came, I had not seen a deer in like a week and a half. He came out, gave me the shot. I shot him, and 10 minutes later, a hog came out, and I shot that too. You know? So I got I got lucky on the hog, but... It's 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 situational. What you harvest in a lot of cases, especially when you're hunting public land, is situational. We'll learn the hard way that you don't pass up a button buck when you got a doe tag in your pocket. <laughs> no, I will. I will always pass yeah, up a button buck. Yeah, I do the same thing. Now, I have an interesting take on does um, when it comes to like private property. Okay. Uh, I've been hunting. I grew up hunting on a lease in South Georgia really started hunting probably started hunting with my dad i was running dogs with him before when i was still in a car seat okay right and i really started hunting i guess pretty heavy with him around the between four and six years old and i killed my first deer when i was 12 and i haven't missed a season since then um but it's when it comes to does and i would say specifically to an area where you quasi have control of deer management on your property mm-hmm I don't like to shoot the big doe that, especially if she's throwing off two fawns every year. Okay. If you can, if you can identify that doe and you know what her age class is, if she's between three and six years old and she's putting out twins or triplets annually and you can identify her. Yeah. Great. We That's had, the doe you want to save. You we had one, we had one on the lease. We lost a couple of years ago that every single year we had that lease. She had twins or triplets. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was for three years. And not only did she have twins or triplets, but you would see those twins or triplets with her in during deer season mm-hmm. as full-grown yearlings. She's not only having two or three, but she's raising two or three to full-grown adult deer. Right. Don't want to shoot her. Really, really hard not to because she's a just a fat steak walking through the woods. Right. But uh, usually, usually she would come out uh, twice one season, I shot a doe that was smaller than her, but not one of her yearlings that was with her when they came out. Sure. And that's what you can do. I mean, yeah. now, the, the 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 argument that I hear all the time is, well, I, you don't want to shoot them during the rut. <laughs> you don't want to shoot them once they're pregnant. Why? <laughs> Dead deer don't no have fawns. So it doesn't matter when you shoot them. Right. If your goal is to take 10 deer or 10 does off your property, then it doesn't matter when you shoot them. Well, what drives me nuts is I've heard several people bring this up in a management plan for leases. We don't shoot does after November. Why? That's what I was like. What? 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 I can I can understand. Or we don't the- shoot we don't shoot does before November, and I'm like, what? Why? 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 If you- if your if your plan is to have more does in heat during the rut, so that bucks will have more does to chase around. Well, that's kind of flawed logic because, if anything, you want fewer does. They don't have to go as far to find a doe. Right. You want fewer does so the competition's higher. Right. Okay. But if you are on a piece of property that has a lot of bucks and a lot of does, it doesn't matter when you shoot them. If your management plan says you need to take X number of does, shoot X number of does. Right. And shoot them when you have the opportunity. It doesn't matter whether it's early or late season. 
if you want to wait until after the rut is over with because you don't want a lot of gunfire going on, okay, that's fine. Wait till after. But still, take the number of does that you need to take for your management plan. Otherwise, the timing doesn't really matter because dead does don't have fawns. Right. Before so, they were pregnant, after they were pregnant, right. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Right? The only, the only cool thing I like about shooting late season doe is the teaching moment where you can do a necropsy and show other hunters, look, this doe was bred at, at, at this date because of the size of the fetus in it. Right. Okay, and you can see the development of the fetus. It might be a little hard for some kids to see, but those kids who've grown up around it, who've been in, you know, in, around hunting families and hunting their whole lives, doesn't bother them. I mean, I grew up around it. It didn't bother me. I never had a squeezy stomach about it or piglets or anything else. But, you know, being that we run Future of Hunting in Florida. Right. I, you know, I've got a bunch of novice kids out there. We shoot a doe late season on a doe tag. I'm not going to open up her uterus and go, look, but kids, there's two fawns in here. And they're, right. <laughs> they're this size. That means that she was bred in September. <laughs> so tasty. They're so soft. Oh. They're unsettling. Sandwich, sandwich doughs. <laughs> sandwich fawns. Just slice them, slice them up. I, I boned one out like a rabbit, and filled it with peppers, and wrapped it in prosciutto. I did that with some fetal pigs once. When it was when I was eating it, I, I felt like I was sinning. <laughs> so, <laughs> kind of were so soft. <laughs> but yeah, going back to future hunting, um, we have we have a rare opportunity here to make an impactful contribution to hunting in the state of Florida with this organization. And I'm, I'm very honored and very lucky to be running this organization, doing it the way that I want with a board that's behind me a hundred percent. And, you know, I keep telling my kids and every kid I find, if you can do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And man, between that and guiding turkeys and making game calls, um, I'm in heaven pretty much every day. It's hard work, but I mean, I love it. I mean, turkey season just ended and I can't wait for next season, you know? And it was a grind this year. Man, was it a tough, tough year. And my hunter numbers were down because I didn't have the, the available private land that I normally have. I was only to do only able to do three private land hunts this year. And two of those were on somebody else's land where I just came and was a caller, right? So I only I only sold one private land hunt this year, and it was for the last weekend of the season. But we got it done, you know. Birds not gobbling, foggy, little cool, didn't say a word, but did my homework. And I found the one gobbler that was hanging out with a bunch of jakes, and we, we put him on the ground at 7.20 in the morning on Saturday. What is it about fog and turkeys where they don't seem like to gobble in the fog? It's really not so well. If it's thick fog, they can't see. They're not going to attract possible predators to themselves. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay, if it's a light fog, the biggest thing with turkeys is barometric pressure. Turkeys like to gobble when it's thirty millibars and above, specifically thirty point zero five or higher. Right, it needs to be getting closer to thirty one, between thirty and a half and thirty two millibars. Turkeys will gobble their brains out most days. There's always exceptions to the rules. I mean, I had a couple of days this year where we had good high pressure, low wind, cool temperatures, not a peep. 
You know, that whole first week of the turkey season. We had some really great weather other than a bit of wind. No birds gobbling. And on places where there should have been birds gobbling everywhere. You know, and it's just, it. sometimes you just have to quit trying to figure them out and just sit your butt in the woods and get, the more time you got there, the better chances you got to get on them. But, um, yeah, like I said, it was a grind this year. It was, we, I worked my tail off for every bird that we shot. But, we killed 23 birds for 25 hunters. So, it was uh, definitely a good season. All right. All right, gentlemen. You got any closing thoughts? What's what's with the what, what's in store for the future of the future hunting in Florida? Well, like I said, we've got we've got the lease enclosure that's getting upgraded. So we're replacing all the stands with tower stands, putting in some additional plots and locations. We're going to expand the hunt types. Um, we're going to do some dove hunts out there. I'm going to try and find some people who are willing to do some turkey hunts next season on the property. Probably do the youth weekend and maybe one weekend towards the end of the season with adults. If Depending on what the what the hatch looks like this year. Um, we I am talking to a couple of different landowners right now about additional leases in Central Florida. So we're still looking for some lease property or some partners who are willing to host some, some hunts. Um, and we're going to start with more advocacy. I would like for the future of hunting in Florida, since we are kind of an umbrella organization, to be that big tent when it comes to lobbying and, and going after, um, you know, different issues in Tallahassee and at the federal level. Uh, we've already started. I've been heavily involved with the um, hunting and fishing bill. I've been up to Tallahassee a couple times now lobbying legislators you're talking about the amendment i'm talking well it's not an amendment it's actually a bill so what has happened is it's gone through three votes in the house it's passed the house it's now going to the senate it has to pass three committees in the senate and once that happens then it goes to the general election ballot as a voter referendum to our constitution our state constitution the last vote in the house was 116 to zero in favor of the, of the right to hunt and fish in the House. And the Senate looks like it's probably going to pass there, too. Knock on wood. Uh, we've got a lot of support within the Senate. Um, if that happens, it will go to the voters. And then we need 60 plus one. Right? We need just over 60% in order for it to pass. And if it passes, then Florida will become the next state to have it in their constitution is a right to hunt and fish. Hallelujah. And there's other things that we're... Are they know, billing it as hunting and fishing, or are they billing it as fishing and hunting? It's kind of interchangeable. Well, I know that, and you know that. Yeah. But I'll bet you when it shows up on the bill, it'll be fishing and hunting for a couple reasons. One is because for a lot of people, fishing is more palatable than hunting, and the other is because when you really take a look at our licensure, and sure. we're all pretty hardcore hunters, the reality is is we're a fishing state. No, we're the... Sport fish capital. Well, the sport of the world. fishing capital yeah. of the world, right? Like, yeah, and and close. you know, with four and a half million license holders. Yeah. In Florida, uh, they greatly outnumber our, our deer hunting and our hunting license holders. Period. I don't care how they get it done. I just hope that they get it done. I don't yeah. care if it's yeah. fishing yeah. and hunting. I don't care if they call it the Gremlin Act. So long as we get yeah. guaranteed. <laughs> part of part of my job as the executive director is to attend every FWC meeting, and to lobby for those things that we think need to be changed. One of the things that I will be talking about in May is 
changing our non-resident hunting license, getting rid of the 10-day license, and going just to the annual, which is what all the other states have done. Right, Our annual non-resident hunting license is $151.50. So if we do that, plus the $125 for the non-resident turkey stamp, plus the $26.50 for the, um, the management area stamp, we'll be at $377.50, which is pretty close to what you have to pay in... And uh, I'm sorry, two hundred seventy-seven dollars fifty cents. It's pretty close to what you have to pay in in uh, Georgia and Alabama. I want to say Georgia offers you a, a three-day license, but it's still god awful expensive. It's like a hundred and eighty bucks. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it's it's almost not worth it. It's to, not worth it. Yeah. Whereas our three-day license is like fifty dollars. Our ten-day license is like fifty bucks. Yeah. When the, when I went to Kentucky, if I was I think it was if I was going to hunt deer, you have to buy the annual license. I, I wait. Hold on. I think in Kentucky, if I was going to hunt deer, I could buy a three-day license. But if I was going to hunt turkey, you had to buy the whole McGill. Not anymore. In, in, in Kentucky now, whether you're hunting, if you're hunting any big game animal. It's a year-round? It's the it's, it's annual yeah. license, and you have to buy the, the deer stamp. And if you're going to turkey hunt, you have to buy the annual license and the turkey, turkey stamp. stamp. And they do that in a lot of the different states. Ohio's is like... I want to say it's $175 for the non-resident annual license for big game. And it's $38 and change for the turkey stamp. $38 and change you go, for the You stamp. go over to Tennessee and it's like, well, you want to hunt here? Sure, sweet. Yeah, it's you over buy your $450. Bucks. Well, then, you know, oh, you want to hunt deer? Cool. What are you going to use? Mm-hmm. A bow? All right. Got to buy that for the bow, too. You want well, to use a shotgun? Oh, you got to buy it for the shotgun, too. We do that here. Yeah. If you're going to bow hunt, you have to have a bow stamp. If you're going to, tur- if you're going to gun hunt. You don't need an additional stamp, but if you're going to muzzleloader hunt, you have to have the muzzleloader stamp. Yeah. You have to have your turkey stamp. You have to have your deer stamp. You have to have your WMA stamp. If you're going to hunt migratory birds, you have to have the state waterfowl stamp, the federal waterfowl stamp, and the HIP permit, which is free, but you still have to fill out the HIP permit. Last I looked, which was yesterday, Alabama still offers a non-resident 10-day license. They do. It's seventy-seven fifty, I think it is. It's more than that. Is it more than that? Oh, now? yeah. They went up it's again? like 180 bucks. Okay. So it's it's still more than half the cost of the annual license. Yeah, because the well the annual license no it's not quite because the annual well I guess not technically the annual license in Alabama is like three hundred and fifty dollars. Okay, and so one eighty would be more than half. You have to pay the additional fifty five seventy three if you want to hunt over corn. If you want to have oh if you want to have feeder yeah yeah. I I only realize this because we just leased property in Alabama as of Monday. I got gotcha. you. So yeah, everybody's got their limits, but. Yeah, but I mean, it's going to run you three hundred and fifty, four hundred dollars to hunt out of state. It's all going to a good place. Yeah, of all the taxes or fees that we pay, you know, that's that's one that I don't usually grudge too much. What what I'm saying is though, is that Florida is the cheapest of all of them. It is. If you look at, especially when it comes to Osceola turkeys, we're the only state where you can get them, and as a non-resident, you're paying less than two hundred dollars. For 10 days of turkey hunting on public land or private land. Make it a grand. Well, <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to see it get exorbitant, you know, but I, I would like to see it commensurate with the other states around us. Yeah. If you want to hunt Louisiana or Mississippi, you're going to spend at least 400 bucks. You're going to hunt Tennessee, you're going to spend Wait, at least $400. What, what are we charging for a, a gag grouper permit? In five hundo? What's the gag grouper permit? You're talking about the Goliath? What, I'm sorry, I said gag. I'm tired. I'm operating on low sleep. 
What's the Goliath grouper permit? Yeah, that's five hundred dollars. Yeah, there you go. And you can't even keep them sure Goliath. No, you got to you got to keep, keep it, it short. You yeah, keep it juvenile, which doesn't make any sense. And they're only selling what a hundred of them. I don't even know. It's man. not money. I don't know if anybody's bought one. I think they have. Well, I personally don't know of anybody who's bought one. Yeah. I'm not saying they haven't sold any. I'm sure they have. I just don't know anybody who's willing to spend that kind of money just to say they caught and kept a Goliath grouper. You know? Especially if you can't keep a 400-pounder. Those taste like dirt anyway, but it'd be nice to keep a 60 or 70-pounder. I don't know if they do. Maybe. Trust me, we we had one in our drive. When I was a kid, one of the shrimp boats caught about a 400-pounder in the shrimp net and we bought it from them down at the docks my dad and a couple of the neighbors and we spent the afternoon in the driveway with machetes and hatchets and, <laughs> and, and, and saws and knives cutting up this cloth grouper and um, it was good for about fish croquettes that was it you grind it up and turn it into fish croquettes because everything else was just it just was so wormy woody. and it was so tough you know like I'm, a big drum yeah, yeah, not not quite, but close. Yeah, like, I, I took a big breeder drum one time just we were beach fishing, and it was like the only decent fish we caught all day. Just you know, wall hanger, and you know, I felt bad because you, know, you forget that it almost seems like two thirds of a drum is head, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> you know, but no, but and, and a quarter of it is skeleton. Yeah, and then you know, and the worms don't bother me; you just pluck them bad boys out, but. You know, the I cut some up and I tried frying it, and it was more like eating chicken than it was fish. But though the good news is, is you know, you can use it in court bouillon and and, and you know, gumbos and things like that. And I do like a firm fish for that. But now, anytime I hook into a big one like that, I just let it go. It's just you know, there's plenty of other fish. Well, there's, that, there's firm fish, and then there's chewy fish, and that's chewy fish. Yeah, so you got to use it in soap or in, a, yeah. in soup. Yeah, well, I'm tired. Yeah. Well, the cheeks are good. Yeah. Cheeks and throats. They catch sharks for. That's right. Well, gentlemen, Chuck, it was good talking to you. It was a pleasure yes, being sir. here. Thanks for making every the time I come over. Yeah, yeah. keep we'll up the good work. Some stickers you can plaster them all over. Have some, get them on the get them on the beer fridge back. Well, there you go. Uh, pull on the side. Yeah. Still got some room up front. Slip one right there underneath Florida, honey. There <laughs> 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 I'll take it. Put it over that hole in the wall Jordan made down there in the bottom, just a little patch. So you know, one last one last call. If 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 you guys know anybody who's willing to donate a hunt or some gear and want to give it to Future Hunting so that we can auction it off this summer, uh, once the website's done, we've got a soft date of May twenty fifth and a hard date of uh, June sixth to get the website up. So I want them. But that's what I told my IT guy because he's been kind of laxing. And I told him I've got to give you some deadlines in order to get this thing done. Because you've had it for two months and I haven't seen anything yet. So well, I got the framework done. Like, Great, send it to me. I want to look at it. Um, but we're, I want to have, by end of July, I want to have the, um, the, the fundraiser done. Because um, between that and our grant money and what we raised throughout the rest of the year, donations, uh, i got to have it so I can pay for our lease and get all our food plots put right. in and all that stuff. And like I said, that that pavilion that we're building, that's going to cost me about nine grand, just to do the the carport. Oh, they're not cheap. Well, carport's actually not bad. The carport itself, with the permit pulled and, and erected, is like forty eight hundred bucks. I not even that much forty forty four hundred dollars. 
But then it was, I'm going to spend another almost $5,000 and skinning it, insulating it, wiring it, putting a floor in it, putting a ceiling in it, lights, building bunk beds, the whole nine yards, putting an AC and heater in it. Yeah, so, and then running it off the generator. As but, many pole barns as Briars helped us put together up around that hunting property you have in Georgia, he's practically an expert. Well, I've got some actual general contractors, oh, okay, licensed contractors. Enough. We're yeah. going <laughs> to oversee it so that we're to code, even though because it's a uh, not a permanent structure, we don't have to pull a permit for it. Um, I'm an elevator man. I can make anything plumb level and square. Good deal. Well, <laughs> good because our property's rolling hills. So I'll definitely have you come up. Yeah, you go look at the other side of this wall. Okay? Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll, plumb. We'll judge that. We'll, yeah. we'll judge that on that wall. Well, it's, it's it's plumb when you've been drinking natty lights. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Oh man, but uh, yeah. So we, we got that going, and um, if anybody's got stuff they want to donate, you know, we'll take anything. Also, if you want to help underwrite, you know, if I my goal is to get ten thousand dollars in cash donations for the banquet because we are going to buy some stuff as well to put on there. When's the banquet? Uh, well, it's it's an online banquet, so it'll be in July. Um, one of the things that we're going to auction off early, I'm hoping to do probably first week of June, is. Um, one of the guys who brought his kid out for a hunt this year, Randy. Randy owns the um, Miss Passa Grill headboat. So he has donated a half-day trip at his cost. And we are selling the spots at 200 bucks a piece for one child, one parent. And we are putting some Lightning players and some Buccaneers players on it. Nice. So you'll get to fish with a couple of the superstars from each of the team. And um, and they'll be helping bait the hooks and, you know, taking pictures with you, taking your fish off. And we'll keep whatever you catch. We'll feed you lunch and have beverages on the boat. But, yeah, basically 100 bucks a head. And, and so, when, was your, when was that fishing trip supposed to be? Probably early part of June. Okay, so you couldn't actually get anything from the best sports team in the state of Florida right now. They'd still be too busy winning. What are you talking about? The Rays. Oh, well, no, we could get something from the Rays. We just wouldn't get a player. Right. Yeah, because yeah. there's just still middle baseball yeah. season. Yeah, yeah. middle baseball season, yeah. But I'm sure we could get some stuff from them. Um, the Lightning's doing pretty good. The Lightning's not doing well. Uh, they, they made it. They're, they're in the playoffs they're, right now, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, and they're down 3-1, to one and they're playing tonight. Oh. They lose I, tonight. They're, they'll be playing golf next week this time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I have a feeling they will be playing golf. Uh, don't get me wrong. I love the Lightning. They are my favorite team. The Rays just lost their first home game last night to the Astros. Yeah, well, the Astros are a damn good team. We beat them in the first one. I don't know what the game's looking like right now, but I don't know what the what the Bolts are doing right now. But God, I hope they're winning because they they're, it's, they're, it's they're winner, either winning or losing the games tomorrow. It's oh, is it tomorrow? I thought it was tonight. <laughs> Seven o'clock against the Leafs. Uh, yeah. Okay, I thought they were playing tonight. Oh well, if the game's tomorrow, we'll see. Yeah. Well, one way or the other, go Bolts. Still love them. Go Bolts. We'll catch you guys next week. Chuck, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Will.